Well, good morning again. As we were listening to Daniel speak this morning, and as I was thinking of our theme in Philemon of reconciliation, I was reminded of a few years ago when we were doing some street preaching and witnessing on Friday evenings down in the East and Alexander area. And we were halfway down that block and there were some women outside having a cigarette in kind of this little penned-in area outside a bar. And these two women started yelling and I couldn't hear what they were saying and I kind of moved toward them and then they saw me walking toward them and they got uh, kind of startled. But what they were saying was, judge not lest ye be judged. And so we talked a little bit about that. But one of the things they said to me is that, you know, we can never be saved. We can never repent. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, each of us have had an abortion and we cannot be sorry for that because it was something we had to do and there was no way that we could ever be forgiven. And I talked to them a little bit. I asked them if they were indeed sorry about the circumstances that led to that. And they they said, well, yes, we were. And I said, are you telling me that Jesus isn't big enough to forgive even that sin? That kind of stopped them in their tracks. And I don't know whatever happened to them since then. It's been three, four years probably. But uh, I pray that maybe they have been reconciled to Christ. And reconciliation itself is a wonderful thing. You know, when people have drifted apart or people have had a serious falling out, when they reconcile with each other, it's, it's beautiful. And really, reconciliation with God is the most beautiful thing. You might say that all of Scripture is God's unfolding history of reconciliation. That whole storyline of the Bible, starting in the garden, at least since Genesis 3.15, it's the storyline tracing God's work to reconcile people to himself and traces the work of Jesus to redeem a people of God's own possession. And reconciliation is a recurring theme for Paul in his letters, including the one we're studying today, but in other letters. Whoops, here we go. In Romans 5, Paul writes, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled, to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. So we who believe have been reconciled to God through Jesus. And Paul spoke of a ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be be reconciled to God. For our sake he made made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So a ministry of reconciliation. That's what we aim to have here at ECF also. A ministry of reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, wanting you to be reconciled with God if you are not reconciled with him. Paul was reconciled to God through his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was a minister of reconciliation for Philemon. And Paul was a minister of reconciliation to Onesimus. Each one of you here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who's been regenerated by his spirit, who has heard the gospel and believed, you've been reconciled with God. You have become a new creation. If you've not been reconciled with God, you remain at odds with him, right? That's my hope and prayer today that you will reconcile with him. As Paul wrote, I and we here implore you to be reconciled with God. Now the whole process of somebody being reconciled with God is indeed a beautiful an amazing thing to behold. Now, sometimes when a person becomes a believer, he or she will also become reconciled with someone uh, that has been an enemy, or they'll be reconciled with someone that he or she had a terrible estrangement with. I was thinking about that the other day because of all things, because of Facebook. Now, okay, I know you can just waste a whole ton of time on Facebook, but the thing that I appreciate most about that social media avenue there with Facebook is that it has allowed me to catch up with people I knew a long time ago. We kind of discover each other, people I grew up with or from college or from the 80s or 90s, you know, uh, ancient history. But what is especially amazing and wonderful is when I find out someone I knew in the past has come to Christ. I found that with some high school classmates. Uh, there was the one who always wore the Kiss concert t-shirt and the Kiss belt buckle. He now plays bass in his praise band down in Long Island. Or there was the one who was really a bit of a wild guy. He's got this awesome Christian family. Or the girl who grew up in my class who's helping run a missionary society for the Presbyterian Church. And then there's a friend named John, and I just came across this this week. I met him through uh, the radio business. He was a jazz radio music director and morning show host in North Carolina. But he met Jesus and he's been transformed. He's now even serving as the youth pastor in his church. Now, I've kind of followed him on and off, seen what he's been up to. But this past week, it was his 40th birthday, and I was completely blessed by a testimony that he posted the day after, thanking people for all those greetings. And and my friend John wrote in part, I just wanted to take time to thank everyone that made my 40th birthday such a special day. I cannot tell you how awesome it was. You can see it in the pictures. I woke up yesterday and the Lord was reminding me of how truly blessed I am. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. I think back to just a couple of years ago when I was in a completely different situation and it seemed like my life was falling apart. 
And then these two great words, but God. Healed, restored, and redeemed because that is how much he loves me. He has surrounded me with a church family that loves me and has been there for me in the most difficult situations. And then he ended his testimony, which went on quite a bit, with a message of reconciliation for others. He said, if you're struggling in your marriage or with drugs or alcohol or whatever the enemy is using to beat you down, man, do I have something I want to share with you. You don't have to go through it alone, and I'm a living, breathing testimony that God can take something messed up and use it for his glory. That he can take your most difficult situation and get you through it, heal you from it, and then give you the courage and strength to share it with the world, in capital letters. I am blessed, and my desire is to be a blessing to others so that they can see the love of Christ in me and through me. So this this fellow John, who has always been kind of a sweetheart of a guy, but now completely transformed by God, has been reconciled to God, and he's committed to seeing others find that same joy. We chatted a little bit back and forth, and he sent me a link to a video of his opportunity to preach last November in his church in North Carolina for the first time. And all I could say was, wow. I mean, it was a little different to watch. It was in Assemblies of God Church, so when he prayed, there was a little piano accompaniment, which was kind of cool. Well, maybe we'll think about it. I don't know. But what a change in this man over the past seven years or so. Only, only God can do that. And so in this letter to Philemon, Paul is seeking reconciliation. He has seen Philemon reconciled to God. He has seen Onesimus reconciled to God. And he desires to see them reconciled to each other. There are a few things I want to draw out of this letter this morning. In fact, uh, Brother Al said to me, one sermon? One sermon in Philemon? You're going to do that all in one? He's, he's right. We, it, it could easily be three or four or five. Or that's, that's, that's Al being our Dutch uncle, which is one of the blessings we have from Brother Al. But, uh, but, but before we get into the, uh, the few things I want to draw out, I just want to set the scene, get a little background so we understand what is going on here and what's causing Paul to have the occasion to write this letter. Now, I think the first thing you'll see is we don't really have a whole lot of information to go on. We can really pull a few things together. And although this is really one of the most, if not the most difficult letters in the New Testament to decipher uh, because of that lack of detail, um, we can pull some things together. Maybe it's assumed that the recipients of the letter already know all the details that are going on. I know I often do that in conversation. I assume people know what's going on, and I'll start a conversation sort of in the middle of it, and everybody looks at me, what are you talking about? Maybe, maybe they already know that, and we're kind of left out of that detail. Or maybe it's just such a delicate situation that Paul doesn't want to be too pointed. In fact, we see some very diplomatic language from him in this letter. Anyhow, there is a lot that's left unsaid here. But one thing we can see is that this letter and Paul's letter to the Colossians were written around the same time and probably delivered at the same time to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 4, we see reference to some of the same people mentioned in this letter, but most importantly, Onesimus. Got it upside down. There we go. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. 
They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Okay, so we have a bit of a clue here. Onesimus is coming along with those delivering the letter to the church at Colossae. And Onesimus is being sent to Philemon according to Paul's letter to Philemon. We also see that a church meets in the home of Philemon. And since the letters both seem to be going to Colossae, it's very likely that the Colossian church, or at least a big part of it or some part of it, is meeting at Philemon's house. We also see two other people mentioned in the greeting, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And most often, commentators and Bible scholars assume that Aphia is the wife of Philemon and Archippus is their son. Paul begins the letter by saying that he is a prisoner, and so that likely places the time and place of that letter uh, in Rome around the year 60, somewhere in there. But Paul might be either in a prison, like in a, in a cell, or possibly, in some say, more likely, sort of under house arrest and chained to a guard as somebody watching him. But the biggest question to figure out is, what is the circumstance that has caused Onesimus to flee to Rome or to, to flee to Rome to see or maybe to happen to run into Paul? Was his meeting with Paul purposeful, as some say, or unintentional, as most will say? Now, obviously, God's sovereign hand not only orchestrated this, but caused this letter to be preserved in the word of God for us. So I'm speaking of this from Onesimus' viewpoint. Was he heading to go see Paul or did he happen to bump into him? Well, the most prevalent view is that Onesimus, who in verses 15 and 16 is referred to, a bond, to as a bondservant or slave, doulos in the Greek, fled from Philemon, who was his master, and somehow ended up there in Rome. Now there, whether he was a fellow prisoner of Paul's or as a prison employee or maybe somebody who happened upon Paul and knew him from having met him with Philemon, perhaps in Ephesus, Onesimus was converted by the ministry of Paul. Now, that alternate view is that Onesimus might have sought out Paul. And why would he do that? Well, there was historic evidence at that time that if a slave had a, a dispute or some sort of issue with a slave master, that he could appeal to a friend of that slave master to mediate that dispute. Now, this view has, has some problems. Foremost of it is that going from Colossae to Rome would be a really, really long journey, and no doubt there'd be other friends of Philemon nearby who could mediate. But let's also remember, and I really don't want to take the time to go in a lot of depth on this this morning, but a slave in that society was not like slavery in the South before the Civil War here. It was not a racial type of a slavery or uh, involuntary for the most part. It could be a voluntary relationship. Slaves often had some status in that society. They would possibly be professionals, teachers, or, or other professionals to help out the master. And they'd be thought of very highly if they were slaves of highly placed people. In fact, that's why if you describe yourself as a slave of Jesus Christ, you are a slave with the highest possible uh, dignity and, and just the highest position. Still, it was a status below that of a free person. And in those ways... It differed from the often harsh and almost always involuntary slavery of the Deep South. So it seems the best explanation is that Onesimus was a slave who fled and then came upon Paul in Rome. Onesimus, after being evangelized by Paul, came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that apparently led to a radical change in Onesimus. He became a new creature. He became reconciled to God. So with that setting... We see now that Paul is appealing to Philemon, and it seems the whole church, since 
The church itself is greeted up front. Paul is appealing to Philemon to receive his former slave back, not only to receive him, but to receive him now as a brother in Christ. And so with that, I'd like to work through a few points in this letter in the time we have and focus in on a few key verses. First, with a greeting. And Paul begins with a fairly typical greeting for him, but with one key difference. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 3, that's that very common greeting of grace and peace. We hear that a lot, and I, I don't want to just breeze past that. It really speaks of a very significant theological point, the creation of one new man in Christ. We have the greeting of grace reflective of the freedom we have as those forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus, while also the greeting of peace, evoking the Old Testament Hebrew greeting of shalom. We have the grace of God now, and because of that, we're heading toward the end times feeling of well-being and tranquility that had always been the goal of God's people, that promised Sabbath rest for the people of God that we enjoy in part now and will enjoy in full when the Lord returns. So grace and peace, forgiveness and shalom. In verses 1 and 2, Paul's fellow worker and protege Timothy is mentioned, and the recipients of the letter are mentioned also, Philemon, Athia, Archippus, and the church in their house. But in, in verse 1, we see something different from most of Paul's other letters. Rather than referring to himself as an apostle, or perhaps avoiding any title or state whatsoever, he refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, by referring to himself as a prisoner, he sets the tone for a few things. First, he shows himself not to be in an elevated position, but a more lowly one. Now, is that maybe to gain a little sympathy from Philemon, or well, maybe, or is it to help associate himself with Onesimus' status in that world? Well, perhaps that's the case too. But there's also a sense in which Paul acknowledges, accepts, and even finds comfort in knowing that he is a prisoner through the design of and in the service of Christ Jesus. He's a prisoner for Jesus Christ, for his purposes and for his glory. Now Paul continues setting up his argument, or uh, rather his request. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now before I get to what I think is the central point of that section, I'd like to pause on one point. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Now just dwell on that one for, for a moment. How often do we actually take that moment to thank God for our brothers and sisters around us when we pray? Maybe we'll pray on their behalf. There's a need or something like that. But man, I'm looking around this room right now and seeing so many people I'm thankful and I'm feeling very convicted that I haven't been thankful enough to God for each and every one of you here. So maybe we need to be 
a little more thankful for our brothers and sisters. Um, But back to those four verses, especially verse 6. Paul writes, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, what I gather from those scholars who are really steeped in the Greek language, this is a really difficult phrase to translate. And, And we see, because of that, a lot of variation from one English translation to another as a result. And I want to look at some of these to see if we can kind of hone in on on what Paul's getting at here. Because on the surface, it sounds like the sharing of your faith, it sounds like Paul's talking to Philemon about evangelism. But I think there's a lot more going on here. The New American Standard, verse 6 says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which which is in you for Christ's sake. The NIV has it a little bit different, but point out here that the word fellowship instead of sharing is what's key here. The NIV says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. They have the idea there, much like we might get from the ESV, that it's about being evangelistic. And um, you get the idea that Paul's saying, well, if you... Go out and evangelize more, then you'll get a fuller understanding. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it a little differently, like this. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. And then the TNIV is similar to the Holman. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Now, from what I gather from the arguments of the scholars on this verse, those that talk about fellowship or participation are closest to what Paul was getting at here. I mean, certainly we gain in our faith through evangelism, but that doesn't seem to be what Paul has in view here. Now, the underlying underlying word in Greek is one that many of us will be familiar with, koinonia. In fact, uh, uh, our, our dear brother Ray Viola has a church named Koinonia Fellowship. In fact, koinonia fellowship may almost be a redundant phrase from what is expressed here. Koinonia has the meaning of fellowship or participating in. It's not so much about sharing one's faith with people, but sharing in the faith, sharing in the faith and fellowship in the life of one another. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. I'm inclined to agree with those who would say that Paul's point is that he prays that Philemon's fellowship with the saints and participation with the saints will grow him in understanding of who Christ is and what the body of Christ is. And I think that fits really well to where Paul takes us in the next part of the verse, in the next part of the letter. So in the next verse, Paul turns things to show how Philemon has refreshed the saints himself with fellowshipping. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And when we get right down to it, aren't we supposed to live in the refreshing, the refreshing fellowship of the saints? Okay, I know that's easier said than done. I know we get under each other's skin. I know, me personally, I have the tendency to get a bit prickly at times. I think that's a good word. That sounds like something my great aunt would say, prickly. Uh, And I know I can be impatient also. And I'm assuming that I'm not alone 
in not always being easy to get along with or one who doesn't always get along with others. We all have those moments, most of us. There are a few saints here who I think don't, and I aspire to grow in sanctification to that point. But, but Scripture is full of instruction that we're not to be islands as Christians. Paul reminds us that we're all part of one body in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. But we all have different gifts and roles. Men and women are equal before the Lord with complementary duties. People in the church have complementary offices. But we all as believers are indwelt with the same spirit of Christ Jesus. And all of us can point to times when we've been refreshed. Often, often it's a mutual refreshing. One of our brothers here texted me just the other day because he was near my office and asked if he could stop by. I'm guessing he was looking to be refreshed and uh, our conversation really refreshed me as well. Well, maybe if we all aim to refresh others, we'd find ourselves more often refreshed ourselves. And doesn't that tie into praying with thanksgiving for others too and counting others more highly than ourselves, you know, as in Philippians 2. Well, anyhow, anyhow, Paul sets up the rest of his letter by pointing to the fellowship of the saints, to the mutual reliance we have on one another, and how Philemon has both benefited from him, from that himself, and how he's benefited others. And so now Paul moves into his argument, or his, his persuasive discourse with Philemon. Uh, argument seems a little strong, though it's the correct use of the word, because of the gentleness and diplomacy that Paul uses. He says, accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Okay, maybe your first impression might be, um, is Paul laying it on a little thick here? Uh, I don't know, but he does say this, I'm so certain of what's right, and he is an apostle also, that I could just tell you flat out what you ought to do. But instead, for love's sake, for his his love of Philemon, and in an appeal to Philemon's love for all the saints, Paul's appealing also to what's right. And he reminds Philemon that he's an old man and he's stuck in prison. So Paul says, look, I could just tell you to do this, but shouldn't you want to do this in love? And he finally does get to the main point. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul has become Onesimus' father in the faith while in prison. Onesimus has become a Christian. And then Paul highlights that with some wordplay that we miss because it's translated. Onesimus means useful or profitable. So the slave named useful used to be useless. And now he's living up to his name. He's useful. And that's not hard to imagine. Maybe you know someone who for all intents and purposes was useless before he or she became a Christian. Maybe that someone was yourself. I'm reminded in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the kicker. And such were some of you. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All of us, all of us who profess faith in Christ were once by nature children of wrath. We go to these familiar verses from Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we're no longer children of wrath, anesthemists, no longer a child of wrath, and no longer useless. And he had something to do. He had something to make him useful, as we all do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once we were sinners, once we were children of wrath, once we were useless for God, now we've been washed by the blood of Jesus and have been given something useful, useful to do, workmanship, works for him, because we are his workmanship. And so that was the case now with Onesimus. He was a new creature in Christ, and as such, he was no longer useless, but was created, recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. He now is useful. Like I said, you who were once useless, you are now useful if you are in Christ Jesus. Now Paul had become very fond of his newfound brother in Christ. And apparently Onesimus was helping to serve Paul while he was imprisoned. Yet Paul knew that Onesimus had to be returned to Philemon. But could Philemon really treat that formerly useless slave in the same way he had before? After all, they are now brothers in Christ. Paul writes... As he continues, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might, might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, as a beloved brother. No longer as a bondservant, but more than as a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you would consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So it seems Paul was respecting the master-slave relationship, at least as far as Roman law, the legal situation that bound them. And he was sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And then Paul speculates on the reason why Onesimus was sent to Paul. So that Onesimus could come to faith and then return to Philemon as a brother, a beloved brother. Now, I'm pretty certain none of us here have been slave owners. Uh, but I think there are a few relationships we may have or have had or do have now that we can draw instruction from in this passage. Well, first of all, our relationship with those who were once unbelievers when we first knew them and who are now believers. Have you known people who were people you just didn't want to have anything to do with and then later you meet them and found they've come to Christ? Isn't your relationship with them now supposed to be a bit different? After all, they're new creations in Christ. Do you still see them as who they once were 
Or do you see them as they are now? Or do you see them? Do you see them as God our Father sees them, clothed in the righteousness of Christ? How do we look at them? Let's not forget, such were some of us, such were all of us, no doubt. Well, how about this? Secondly, our relationship with those who may be from a different social or economic or ethnic background. Are we allowed to look down upon brothers and sisters in Christ because of that? Absolutely not. We can turn to a couple of places in Scripture to remind us that it's not just no to that question, but emphatically no. In James, my brothers, show no partialities. You hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, or if you're committing, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Onesimus was a slave. Philemon was his owner. They're now brothers. 1 Corinthians 11. We hear this on our communion evenings. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have brothers and sisters in lowly places overseas who we share that same bond with, we share that same spirit with. We have people in this city who are downtrodden and in despair. We have people who come to a place like Compass Care. We have women who see no hope, no way out. And then we also see people in neighborhoods not far from here who think that because they have lots of wealth, they have no need of Christ. It, it reminds me of a, of a Bible study uh, that's held every week here in Pittsburgh. And I talked to them one time when I had a chance to lead it about Jesus calling the rich young ruler to leave everything behind. And one of the men there got very upset. And he said, I don't think there's anyone in this room who would do that, would give up everything to follow Jesus. There's a man whose riches, whose uh, really fancy BMW coupe, kind of blind him to his need. And thirdly, there's something to learn about the relationship between boss and employee. Can a boss really treat, treat his or her employee unfairly as a lesser person when both are in Christ? 
And can a boss treat anyone that way if the boss is a Christian? Well, our status in Christ tells us now that we're accounted as blameless and righteous. We're filled with the same spirit and will be gathered around the throne joyously with those of every race and tribe and tongue and nation. How could we live now without that in view? And, and that's one of the points Paul's getting at with Philemon. Receive this formerly useless save as you would your brother who is useful. And so Paul continues, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul further appeals to Philemon not only to receive Onesimus as a brother and without partiality, but to be forgiving of him. Seems that Onesimus owes him something. Maybe he stole something. Maybe it's just lost labor that he owes Philemon. But Paul makes this appeal. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Confident of your obedience, I will write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. And so Paul offers to repay whatever is owed, and he writes it in his own handwriting, writing his own IOU, so to speak. But he expects that Philemon, who owes Paul for his conversion as the one who evangelized him, will be even more generous, generous and refreshing Paul's heart. And so Paul finishes this letter by asking Philemon to prepare a guest room. Maybe, maybe Paul's going to come and check up on him. I don't know. Or at least he wants to be refreshed in seeing the reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. And then Paul closes the letter on behalf of his fellow workers and writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So what can we take from this short letter? There's a lot more we could mine from it, I'm sure. But I think one thing we cannot take from it is any sort of endorsement of slavery. Paul, in other places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 6, will tell people that they're slaves when they're converted to be content to remain a slave. But in this letter, he strikes a blow against slavery by showing that it isn't the right relationship between brothers, at least not without some accommodation for the understanding that they are now brothers in Christ. The idea of a Christian owning another Christian runs against that. We can understand from this that God is reconciling people to himself and Christians to one another. And if we see a brother or sister who now has been reconciled to God, how can we not be reconciled to them? And we can understand that it is fellowship that is most sweet among Christians, refreshing us and refreshing each other. So I hope you get to experience the joy that comes from seeing friends reconciled to God through Jesus. And I hope and pray that you've not yet come to that reconciliation. If you've not come to the understanding of what Christ really did on the cross and paying the price for the sin of mankind and how you'll be forgiven if you believe in his substitution for you. Jesus taking the punishment for you. I hope you'll understand that and repent. The Holy Spirit transforms the hearts of believers, making them new creatures like Onesimus and making them useful and not useless. So my friend John, who I mentioned at the beginning, I wrote back to him to let him know how much I had been blessed by his testimony on that day. And he did send me that link to the video and I had a chance to watch it and it was really, really fascinating to see. But I wrote back about what a blessing the testimony was. And he wrote back, Amen, Ed. How amazing when we truly find out who we really are.
Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another. That, that truly is amazing. Father, thank you that you are reconciling a people to yourself from every tribe and nation and tongue, from every social status, every circumstance, that one day that group of reconciled saints will be gathered around your throne, singing a beautiful chorus, praising you, looking in wonder at what you've accomplished. We look forward to that day and we look forward to seeing more people reconciled to you. And pray that our fellowship would be sweet and that our reconciliation with others would be beautiful and lovely. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand for this.